0: If you would, we continue in our series in Matthew. And if you would, turn to Matthew 13. I know we've been in Matthew for quite a while now. And we're just in, just finishing up today and beginning chapter 14. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones took six and a half years to get through the book of Romans. So we are doing well. <laughs> this was many years ago. It was early in the morning. Marilyn was still asleep. I needed to get to the church office at the church that I was serving at at the time. And it was still dark outside. And not to want, I didn't want to wake Marilyn up. The, the kids were still asleep. So I went ahead and I got dressed in the dark and When I got to work, after a while, interacting with everybody, I was sitting at my desk, and then I looked down and saw that I had put on two different pair of shoes, one from each pair of shoes. And, of course, the office that I worked in, nobody would tell me that. They would just let me walk around like that all day. It was certainly... You don't wear a black shoe... And a brown shoe at the same time. Well, like my two different shoes, these two stories that I'm about to read will seem as though they don't belong together. But there is a reason Matthew has them as they are in this gospel. So if you would look in Matthew 13 and let's begin in verse 53 and then we'll flip over to chapter 14. Matthew writes, and this is the word God of God. So let us give our attention and our respect and our submission to his word. Verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is, that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him, John, to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths. And his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus, Father, your word is true. It is light, and it is life to us. And it is your word, your authority that we submit to this morning, that you would, as John prayed, open our ears and open our eyes To see your glory in these stories. To hear you speak through your word. Help me to serve these dear people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, unlike Matthew, unlike Luke... Matthew doesn't write chronologically, exactly in time how things happen, but thematically. And so he connects situations together and he connects themes together to help his readers understand who Jesus is. The main theme that we will see in both these passages is the problem of unbelief. There are minor themes, including you know, we see a prophet, a prophet not received in his own home with John, a prophet being beheaded in, in chapter 14, we see opposition, and we see death. In chapter 8, Jesus began to face opposition as his ministry was kicking off. Touching an unclean leper, healing a Gentile's servant, forgiving a paralytic, eating with tax collectors and sinners, and healing a cripple on the Sabbath, led the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, to look for a way, as Matthew writes, to destroy him. They wanted to kill Jesus. And the opposition grew in intensity and Jesus responds to their opposition and to their unbelief by stepping back as we see in chapter 13 and begins to speak with them in parables, which in essence is concealing both the gospel and the kingdom of God to those who refuse to believe. In many ways, it's a sign of judgment. And the opposition, as we see in chapter 14, is even more pronounced where John the Baptist has been killed. He has been executed. And it is a foreshadow of what is about to happen in just a few months when Jesus is taken to the cross and he is executed. Matthew describes all of this for us. And in this passage that we have read this morning, these two passages, Jesus describes the unbelief he sees around him in the parable of the sower. And he does it by quoting Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. He says to the people, to the scribes and Pharisees, to those around him, he says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they barely hear and with their eyes they they are closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. It is a tragic, tragic shift for these opponents of Jesus as he begins to conceal the gospel and the kingdom of heaven to them because they have refused to believe that he's the Messiah. Now, in chapter 13, we see Jesus has just finished all these parables, and he leaves this crowded city area, and he makes his way to his hometown of Nazareth, a a village of maybe, at the most, 500 people. And although his birthplace is Bethlehem, Nazareth is the place where he grew up, where his family and friends still live, and where everyone knew everyone else. It was a small town indeed. And in these two passages, we see, in reality, we begin to see the parable of the sower being illustrated, in particular, the seed that fell on the hardened path. Many Many in Nazareth knew of and rejoiced at the miracles that they had heard about or the miracles they had seen Jesus doing. Many were amazed by his wisdom and his authority when he taught. But the seeds of the gospel did not take root. And instead, in Nazareth, and we see in the life of Herod, it turns into fierce opposition. Nazareth's rejection of Jesus because of unbelief and Herod's rejection of John the Baptist connect these two passages by a common and tragic human condition called unbelief. And it's in these two stories we will see three things. The epidemic of unbelief, the effects of unbelief, and our fight against unbelief. The epic, uh, the epidemic of unbelief. Now, returning to Nazareth, if you know about Jesus' history with his family, returning to Nazareth, Nazareth was not a happy family reunion. Not a Christmas commercial where he came home and warm coffee was waiting uh, for him and all the presents around the tree. It was not a happy family reunion, but a continuation of of the widespread opposition and unbelief he faced wherever he went. Not even in his own home town or his family could he escape this darkness, this human condition called unbelief. And yet he still goes home for the sake of the gospel. He goes home because he cares. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this account, all record his return. And his reading of Isaiah 61 that, that ignited when he came and spoke in the synagogue, that, that ignited the fires of opposition and scorn and unbelief. And so he's in this town, he's in his hometown, a town where everybody knew everybody, where everyone knew your family, where everyone knew where, where you lived, how you were raised, what kind of education you had, what, what you were like as a kid. And Matthew in Matthew, in 13, 55 and 56, questions come when he, when he arrives after he speaks in the synagogue. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is... Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Matthew, Matthew tells us that there were seven siblings, seven brothers and sisters in Jesus' family, <clears throat> four brothers and at least two sisters. Now, growing up in a large family has challenges. My wife, Grew up in a family of eight. She was the seventh of eight. And with three older brothers, she knew that if she didn't get her food first at dinner time, she would not be eating that night, sharing a bed with her sisters. When we first got married and I moved over to cuddle next to her that first night, All of a sudden this hand came down and she said, no, this is your side of the bed and this is my side of the bed. Do not cross. And that's how she grew up with her sisters. And it was like, chop, chop, don't come near. But we're married. (laughs) Imagine what it was like growing up with Jesus. It must have been maddening to have a brother who was perfect. I'm sure that's how my two brothers felt about me. (laughs) Jesus was the perfect older brother, perfect in obedience to his parents, perfect in relating to others, a perfect playmate, always cleaning his room. Hear that, kids? Always cleaning his room, never sinning. Children, you get the picture. Now he comes home with his reputation preceding him, about doing miracles and his authoritative teaching, and it's only that much more difficult to swallow who this guy is. And in Luke fourteen, we get a more Luke four, we get a more detailed account of what happens when Jesus arrives in Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue and here's what happened as we read. And Luke gives us a much more detailed account. Jesus goes to the synagogue and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. He had just read this. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What? we have heard, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, do the miracles here. You did them in Capernaum. You did them in Galilee. You did them wherever you went. Do the miracles here in Nazareth. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who is a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only S- Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. Now what was, he, what was he saying there? Jesus, as he reads this passage, he says, listen, fulfilled in your hearing today is this. I am the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has come to set captives free. I am the one who heals. I I am the awaited Messiah. But you don't really believe this. All you want is a show of miracles. But miracles are not why I've come. And so he tells them two Old Testament stories that they would be very familiar with. Elijah with the widow and Elisha with Naaman the Syrian. Two Gentiles who experienced the mercy and favor of God. And what Jesus is saying to these Jews in the synagogue, these religious leaders in the synagogue, he's saying to them, these Gentiles experienced the favor of God because they believed. And you, you have not experienced the favor of God because you have not believed. And what happens is their hearts quickly turn to rage we see this unbelief has spread throughout this town and even in his own family. If you remember with Jesus's family in Mark 3.21, they, they want to take him away from speaking to the crowds because they think he's gone crazy. And in John 7, his brothers come to take him and say, look, look we, you need to go to another place because this is, this is not good. We, we want you to try and do miracles somewhere else. And then John makes this comment, because they did not believe in him. And so he is among a town that does not believe in him. He's among a family that does not believe in him. And the the response is, as we see in Matthew 13, they are offended. They are filled with wrath. They refuse to believe him. And Herod was no different. He heard the word of the Lord through John the Baptist. He was governor of the territory that Jesus traveled in. So he would have known of Jesus' miracles. And yet his heart, Herod's heart, was hardened. And it shouldn't surprise us. It should not surprise us that, that these people do not believe. It shouldn't surprise us that unbelief is common among us. And it shouldn't surprise us that unbelief is not just limited to these kinds of people it's a human condition that's common to all including christians we see this in the life of john the baptist while john was in prison he struggled with unbelief we read that in chapter 11 of matthew confused and alone and unsure he had doubts about jesus and he was not alone This is is an experience that that many, if not all of us, had. The disciples struggled at times to believe who Jesus really was. And many Christians throughout history have had their, their moments where they struggle with doubt and unbelief. Paul was troubled by the thorn in his flesh. Jesus was troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Unbelief. In the re- is a is reality in our, in our life. Unbelief in the reality that Christ is good. Unbelief in the reality that God is present with us even when life is difficult. Unbelief is an epidemic. In Pilgrim's Progress, the two characters, Christian and Hopeful, choose a path that is easier than the one that they were told to stay on. Soon they were captured by a giant called Despair. And they were imprisoned in his castle called Doubting Castle. And of course, great doubt about the Savior's promise creeps into Christian and hopeful. Now the author John Bunyan is actually writing his autobiography in Pilgrim's Progress, having himself spent 12 years in prison for his faith. And like John the Baptist, John Bunyan was unwilling to, to stop preaching the truth. So he is thrown into prison. And like John the Baptist, he has a dark moment where he's wondering if he'll ever get out. And he begins to, in a sense, lose his way, doubting God, unassured of God's care. And he feels trapped by giant despair in this doubting castle of a prison. We see unbelief everywhere in the world, but often miss it in our own lives. Listen, complaining is a sign of unbelief. Fear is a sign of unbelief. Ungratefulness is a sign of unbelief. And we all have moments of unbelief, most often revealed in our trials and our sufferings. And as a pastor, I've talked to many throughout the years who struggle to believe, doubting, doubting God's goodness and care because of their, their sufferings and their trials in, in a troubled marriage or a financial stress or seeing the church split or having difficult with their children. John the Baptist called Herod out on his sin and he was put in prison because of his faithfulness to God. He did exactly what God had told him to do and now in shame and hunger and physical torment and loneliness, he discovers that's his reward. Where's God's love and compassion, he wondered. And you can imagine the lies he heard from The devil as he suffered in that pit lies the same lies you and I hear the same lies that we tend to believe at times when life is at its most difficult when life is most painful why am I still in this place cries that I've had why is my granddaughter still autistic Why is my child still wayward? Why is my boss such a persecutor? Why is my husband so unspiritual? Why does a school bus get in front of me every time I drive? You can imagine the doubt, the unbelief that can creep in when we are most troubled. And like every human, John doesn't fully understand the mystery of God's sovereign purposes or providences. But he also, at one moment, forgot that he wasn't alone. He didn't suffer alone, and neither do you and I. God was much closer to John the Baptist or John Bunyan or Paul or us when we suffer, when we are troubled. Unbelief is is an epidemic and its effects when we give into it can be devastating. Secondly, the effects of unbelief. First, the effect of his family and town's unbelief, Mark tells us in his account, is that Jesus marvels at their unbelief. But it was not the same kind of marveling that he expressed in Matthew 8 when the centurion expressed faith towards Christ. This marveling is one of deep, deep discouragement for the Savior. He marveled at their unbelief. This was a tragic description. How is it they refuse to believe the Messiah standing in front of them? How can they miss who I am, Jesus thinks? And yet, how is it that we doubt doubt Christ in our most difficult moments? After saving us from our sins and judgment and God's wrath by his suffering and death on the cross... And then seeing us doubt, it should not surprise us that maybe at times he would marvel at our unbelief. The effect is not a good one. Secondly, the effect of their unbelief was that they were blind to who he was. They heard his divine wisdom. They saw his divine power. They did not believe what he said not from a kid they grew up with. Their questions were harsh and their questions were probing. Is this not the carpenter? We watched him work among us. He's a common laborer. He grew up among us. How did he get this wisdom? He's no more educated than the rest of us. How are such mighty works done by his hands? The son of Mary, now, he, notice that the, the authors don't say the son of Joseph, they say the son of Mary. It's a subtle dig to communicate that they believe he's illegitimate. We know his brothers and sisters. They've lived here among us. We've known him all his life. There's nothing special about his family, which means there's nothing special about him. Who does he think he is? The Messiah? Yes. John 1.11, John in his gospel makes it clear. He came to his own and his own received him not. The third effect of their unbelief was that they were offended. Luke says they were filled with wrath because of his rebuke. And so they want to put him to death. And they look at the end of Luke, Luke 4 to throw him over a cliff. And fourth, the effect of their unbelief was their attempt at murder. Now John the Baptist is killed. They try to kill Jesus. Truly a prophet is not received in his own home. The death of Jesus was foreshadowed in John's death. Because just months later, Jesus is beaten and whipped and mocked and ridiculed and nailed to a cross. And he hangs there for hours until he dies, forsaken by his own father for our sins and our sake. All because his enemies refused to believe who he was. And finally, the effect of their unbelief was that, and these are some of the saddest words in Matthew 13, the very last verse verse of thirteen fifty eight, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief Jesus withdrew from them because of their unbelief and now it's not that he was incapable of doing miracles he's the king he's the, the divine one he's the Lord he's God in, come in flesh but it would be inappropriate for him to do miracles because he's not a showman and he doesn't do tricks at the drop of a coin. It was in that atmosphere of unbelief that it would have been morally wrong for him to exercise his power. Now listen, there, are, there is very likely some here this morning who are not sure, who know they do not believe in Christ. And you're, you're here in church, and we're thankful that you are here, but you're just, you're just orbiting around Christianity and not yet in the kingdom. The good news is Jesus has made a way for you and will help you in your unbelief if you will come to him. If, if not, the effect upon you is eternal. An eternal judgment where God is eternally absent in his mercy and grace. Don't let that be you. In John 3.36, John is quoting Jesus. And Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we see that's the effect. There's an epidemic of unbelief, and there's all these effects of unbelief. But... There is a fight that we must wage against unbelief. Point three. As Christians, listen, we do struggle with unbelief. I I do at times. And there is an effect upon us. When we doubt and lose sight of Christ, the effect upon us is that our world becomes dark and it becomes difficult. But, Matthew Matthew records this at the end of his story about Herod and how John the Baptist was put to death. And he closes that story with these words in verse 12 of Matthew 14. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. He told, Matthew right here tells us all we need to know about how to face the temptation of unbelief in our lives. After his disciples buried John the Baptist, they went to Jesus and they told him of John's death. But there was more to coming to Jesus than just giving him information. It's very likely that the disciples who came to Jesus in Matthew 11, when John was in prison and doubting and struggling, were the very ones that were with the Messiah now. They had met him before, and they'd experienced his mercy and his patience and his kindness towards John when John was doubting. They came to Christ because they believed in who he was. They saw their need for him. They responded to the tragedy of John's death by looking for Christ. They fixed their eyes on the only one who could give them hope in a tragic situation. And the same, brothers and sisters, must hold true for us. We, we must fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus warns us in the parable of the sower, if we fix our eyes on the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of this world, we will suffer in unbelief. And then every day we see rampant unbelief in the world, in ourselves, and even in the church. Attacks on scripture, Christ's deity, the doctrine of sin and hell, and creation regarding gender have infiltrated not just the world, but our church. And this unbelief can only be rooted out by us, by you and I standing firm on the word of God, looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We must be vigilant in guarding our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And if we do not, we will be swayed by Paul, by, as what Paul says, by every wind of doctrine and philosophy that comes across in our culture. Now, we can do this because we're not alone. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and is always present with us. Our confidence is in Christ and his faithfulness to us. Listen, the truth is, Jesus has never forsaken you. Never. Jesus has never left you. Jesus has always provided for you. Jesus has always comforted you. Jesus has always cared for you. Jesus has never let you down. He has always and always will be faithful. Unbelief is only a lie. It is a lie that creeps in because we are more apt to listen to the voices of the devil and the world and the culture than we do God speaking to us in his word. Brothers and sisters, hold fast the confession of your faith. The writer of Hebrews writes this, and he reminds us to be vigilant. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Oh, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. And if you are struggling with unbelief, listen, cry out to God. Cry out to God as the man in Mark 4 cried out. He said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And God will do so. Father, thank you that even when we struggle with unbelief, you are faithful and you are patient and you are gentle and you are tender and you are present. And you do not... You do not condemn us, but you sympathize and you help us. And Lord, so we we do, wherever there is unbelief in our hearts this morning, we confess it to you. We confess it to you and ask you to help us in our unbelief, that we might live in such a manner that brings glory to your name.